Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Purple Ponderings with Pankaj. Today we have a very unusually uh, interesting guest, uh, Tony Cardo. Uh, we try and get people from wearing different hats in the industry. And Tony is, is, is someone who's, who's very distinctively different. So Tony, with, let, let me hand it over to you. And if you wanna share a little bit about your background, uh, that would be wonderful. Sure, I'm happy to, and I, I'm happy to to chat today and and talk about some of the really interesting stuff happening in in and around this industry. Um, as you mentioned, I, I'm with NAMIC, the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Uh, we represent we're a trade organization that represents about over 1,400 different insurance carriers and market participants at this point, um, more than two-thirds of the auto and home industry, uh, and everyone from, you know, all of your national gigantic writers who are not publicly traded, um, as well as the three county farm mutuals in Iowa and Wyoming that only write within their little geographic area um, and do so really well. Uh, it's a role I've been in for about a year, uh, and, and I promise, you know, the COVID meltdown had nothing to do with me joining NAMIC. That was totally unrelated. No. Um, it's a, I, I've been there as the director of auto and underwriting for the last year. Uh, it's a new role that they created, uh, sort of looking, looking back at the last year, it was in, incredibly prescient to say, where are the attacks going to come against our members is going to be on the auto and underwriting space for sure. Um, especially given what's unfolded in the last 11 months. Um, so it, it's been really interesting and I'll, I'll preface our entire conversation saying that you know, my, uh, my remarks here are not to be taken on behalf of NAMIC. I'm here in my own capacity and they're my views, not those of NAMIC or any of our member companies. Um, you know, where, where we have staked out a position, I'm happy to, to lay that out, but generally speaking, it'll be my my thoughts. Um, and in terms of background, I come to come to NAMIC after about fifteen years in and around politics and regulation. So, I, and and always with an eye on the insurance side. Um, I'm not sort of. I know a lot of the folks you talk to tend to be on the tech side, on the startup side, the the insure tech universe that likes to sort of have this self perpetuating. Um, you know, group of folks who, oh, what a great idea. We'll disrupt, we'll disrupt, we'll disrupt. That's not where I'm from. <laughs> That's not where I'm coming from. I come at this from the politics of insurance, which I find fascinating. The regulation of insurance, because I used to be at the NAIC and I used to be at the cabinet that oversaw the Kentucky Department of Insurance. Um, and then I, I come at it from the, how does that all interact with what the companies need to do to make money and to protect their policyholders. So that intersection of the politics, the regulation and the insurance is where, where my, my home and my head are at. Um, and it's why I find it fascinating to talk to folks from the startup world and from the InsurTech universe who have, I, I won't say they don't ever have a clue but they are extraordinarily naive um, when talking about regulation and laws and politics. And they're just sort of things that get in the way for a lot of startups and insure techs. <laughs> Whereas for, for those of us who live this and have lived this as a career, 
that that's where it all happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for that great uh, background introduction. And, you know, you said there's regulation and there's politics and there's insurance. I'm going to add a fourth angle to it, which is emerging technology. Mm -hmm. right? So now if you throw it in all of those, that's a nice potpourri of stuff that can happen, right? And, and your, uh, you know, background is so fascinating. I'm going to start by first asking you, um, and you and I have had chats previously, and like you said, like, you know, a lot of the startups who are especially new to insurance kind of come in wanting to do things using technology, and then they run into, oh my God, there's regulations and these regulations seem archaic. It seemed, they seem to have been built by people who hate technology and hate like the, like, you know, the, the benefit of the industry. That's the perception, right? So uh -huh. I want you to just come at it at, uh, you know, there's obviously a balanced view of what that should be, but talk to me first a little bit about like, what is the extremes, right? The unbalanced view. What if there's too much regulation? What if there's too less regulation in politics? So just so from your perspective, right? Because I'm sure you've seen both angles and sort of Absolutely. have had the opportunity to provide a balanced point of view. I'd like for you to just explain for the benefit of our viewers, what does that look like? Sure. And I think so for better or worse, probably worse, um, you know, po politics and laws and regulations are a people business. So the people who sit in the chairs matter. The people who sit in as the chairman of the insurance committee in your state, that matters. Who sits in the insurance commissioner's office matters because they have very different views on these things that you're talking about, on where that sort of lever of regulation, you know, if I tilt it this way, I'm over-regulating. If I tilt it this way, then my consumers are, are at risk. And I will tell you that across the board, the way regulators in the US view their job is their job is to protect consumers. That's, that's, that's the beginning and the end of it, okay? There, there are, there's more to it than just that, and there's different attitudes on how you protect consumers, but that is gonna be number one on any regulator's list. My job is to protect consumers, the, the people who buy insurance policies. Um, now, how do you do that? That's where that's where you start to get into all the all the other fun discussions that we're going to have. But in terms of overprotecting versus underprotecting, I think every regulator is going to err on the side of overprotecting consumers and saying, "I I need to protect that person who is the least capable of protecting themselves." Right? Whether it's people who can't read a policy whether it's people who don't understand what's been sold to them by their agent or direct channel or whatever it is, they're going to err on the side of, I want to protect that consumer. Now, they also have a secondary responsibility to protect the market in their state, right? Because if the market dries up and nobody wants to write in your state because you're a really nasty regulator, then you've created a different problem because now I have a lot of people who want to buy insurance in my state and they can't because nobody can afford it because I chased out all the companies by being a really mean regulator. So, <laughs> you know, I, and then I, I'd add to that dynamic, the, the politicians, right? The actual elected officials who write the insurance code. Again, who sits in that chair matters. I tend to think that when you have 
state insurance committees in your state legislature who have an insurance agent sitting in the in, as the chairman who knows something about insurance. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, but you know, it's interesting the way you framed it because inherently what that tells me is that the regulators are there, like you said, to protect the people, which means that there is inherently a set of conflict of interest with the insurers then, right? Because it's the insurers on one side and it's their customers on the other. And if I'm going to be at the get-go on the side of the customers, then I should be against the insurers because that's where the sort of the complaints come from. And yet you make a good point of sort of, here's the element of politics that come in, comes in, which is the extent of that play between these actors differ from states to states. And it's, it's an element of who's sitting in those elected seat and how much do they understand insurance that sort of plays into it. So right. without, a really I mean, good regulator is someone who understands that the insurer is not against their policyholder, right? The really good regulator is the one who says, okay, let's find out how your interests are all aligned. And then because look, I mean, I don't know any policyholder who wants losses. <laughs> true, true, true. But to your point, like you said, you've seen certain regulators dry out the state, as you said, right, which is put in some regulations which make it very hard for carriers to operate, uh, you know, profitable business. Uh, so there's always these, I guess we have 50 states. So 50 states means each state would have a different perspective on sort of, uh, you know, consumers' interests, right? So Absolutely. talk to me a little bit about, I mean, there's the politician, I'm assuming there's a politics to this, right? Democrat versus Republican, and there's some probably patterns that might be coming, but um, how does one, so let me put on my hat as a startup and say, look, if I want to come in and I want to make sure that I, I want to operate in a state which is very regulation friendly, what would that experience look like for me versus another state where it would I might have a horrible experience, right? So just talk mm -hmm. to me a little bit about some stories to the extent possible. Sure. You can, you can share it from your experience. Sure. Well, the first thing I'll say is, you know, trade associations are your friends, just as a general, not just pitching NAMIC, but when you join groups, you get the benefit of experience and you get the benefit of having, you know, Someone, someone to stand behind and someone to stand next to you when you go have those conversations with the politicians and the regulators. Uh, I think the most important thing is not to be afraid because if you don't have that meeting and you assume that you're going to, you know, just run your business and start something up and then all of a sudden someone says, wait a minute, your entire business model is against the law in this state. Now you got a real problem. <laughs> so, Look, regulators are very easily approached. Um, in, in some cases, probably even more so than, than legislators. But the way you do it is you, you reach out and you say, hey, I, I would like to bring a product to market in your state. I think your consumers could really benefit from this or your voters, depending on who you're talking to, right? Um, and then you start to have the conversations now depending on which regulator it is, you're going to get different levels of pushback. Okay. And they're going to say, well, no, we, we're, we're not interested in having someone write that coverage here. Okay. Move on to the next state maybe, but 
maybe you say, well, I've got 20 letters from voters in your state who want this coverage. Now we got a different conversation on our hands. So it, it's a combination, it, you have to approach the regulators, approach the legislators, have those candid conversations, but you also need to show that their interests or their bosses, usually governors, um, you know, that their interests are aligned with whether it's a new technology, new product, new service, whatever it is, there's a need for it in your state, right? And, and, and if people had the choice, they would want to do this. Got it, got it. Um, we actually got passed into law uh, two, three years ago now, uh, a, a sandbox concept here in Kentucky um, by which you know we could basically allow the insurance commissioner to wave her hand and say, none of the rules apply to this product as long as you are constantly talking to us about it and sharing feedback and, and telling us, you know, what happens. Um, you know, I, the governor lost his reelection bid last year, so <laughs> we didn't really get to see much through, but um, conceptually that and legally, that's where we are in Kentucky, at least. We do have a sandbox bill. That's, uh, that's it sounds like a mission impossible kind of a thing, like, a, you know, compared to the perception a few years ago, but um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, that a good practice, a best practice is therefore to talk to trade associations in your state and be proactive about it is what you're saying, right? So mm -hmm. uh, for the benefit of some of the startups, especially people like me, what are some typical trade associations that I should be aware of that I should reach out proactively, um, you know, to, 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 uh, to get the uh, concept socialized? Sure. So on the um, on the insurance side, there's NAMIC, um, where where I'm at. Um, the there are 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 sort of sister trade on the publicly traded side is APCIA, the American Property Casualty Insurance Association. Um, their membership is much is made up of again publicly traded insurers, unlike our mutuals. Um, additionally, many of the states have a state trade association dedicated to representing insurance companies. Um, in, in some instances, it's a regional, like um, out West, there's the Northwest Insurance Council for companies operating in Oregon and Washington. Um, but th so there's regionals, there's state trades, there's the nationals, you're, you're gonna get the most traction probably at the state level. Um, but then also things like even your local chamber of commerce, um, they plug into the national chamber and in many instances. And like, I had a conversation just a couple days ago with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce about uh, strategy on defending risk-based pricing. And even though there are dozens of insurance companies that are members of the U.S. Chamber, the U.S. Chamber isn't thinking about insurance all the, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> They're thinking about much right. bigger issues. They turn to groups like us when they have an insurance question. So that those are some of the the ways to plug in. Um, but yeah, I, I, and the other thing about groups like a like a U.S. Chamber or or like a local chamber is they can make that introduction that gets you in the door with your legislator, and then you take it from there. Right? <laughs> like, as, okay. as long as you're in the room. 
you're the expert on your on your company, on your area, on your industry. Um, and I, I think legislators understand how that works. Got it, got it. That's that's excellent advice. So now, now let me pick on something that you just mentioned some time back, as, uh, which was the Kentucky sandbox, you know, call it the experiment, right? Which is uh, so refreshing, right? That you have this ability to literally, like if you've come up with a new a way or, or new product that you think is going to be beneficial to the consumers and, you know, to get it out there, you have a state legislative or state body that's willing to say, hey, as long as you keep us, um, you know, updated, uh, you're good to go. Uh, now, you know, just explain that. Now, Ed, we, we were not able to waive the capital requirements. Oh, okay. So we, we waived a lot of the requirements, but capital was one where people couldn't get comfortable with that. Got it, got it. So capital was <laughs> one, but where I was going with that was, you know, that in the context of now newer technologies, right? So now, like if you think about insurance as a product, you know, the product has at the core of it remained the same for the last, well, I could say 300 years since Lloyd started writing it. Right. But a lot of things have changed, right? And how you administer how the policy itself, the claims itself, how you assess the risk, how you think about risk mitigation, all of that has evolved a bit as newer and newer technology started coming. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about, like if this is a forum to get the message out to all the states, right? To say, look, you should, here's the reason why Kentucky thought about this, but it's not unique to Kentucky. It's, you know, applies to everyone. So just from your perspective, right? As you see this onslaught of new technologies and you see this opportunity to better the product and the industry, right? What puts your perspective on that? So I think the message to regulators that, that we took away from a lot of the conversations that we had leading up to the sandbox bill is that people, consumers want these new items and these new products and these customized coverages. Consumers want to buy insurance the way they buy everything else. I don't, you know, I, sitting here, I'm not going to say that that's a good thing or a bad thing, although the, the sort of traditionalist insurance guy in me says it's a bad thing to buy an extremely complex contract by tapping on your phone. But the reality is that that's what consumers want. And consumers are putting the right amount of pressure on, or, you know, might need to put more pressure on <laughs> to say, why, why not? Why can't I buy my car insurance an hour before I go drive? Why can't I buy boat insurance when I swipe my boat on, get, in, get on the boat, go out on the water, come back, turn it off? Why can't I do that? And the answer usually is because the law was not written for that. To which you got to come back and say, okay, well, we need to update the law because mm -hmm. there's a market out there for this. There's money to be made. People want coverage for new risks, for different risks, for, look, th think about this, right? Like 25 years ago, no one had heard of a personal electronic device policy. Nobody carried cell phones. Now it's almost unheard of not to have insurance for your cell phone. Right. Um, 
so so from a from a legislative perspective, the reason for things like what we did in Kentucky is that the laws just haven't kept up with the technology, and that's not unique to insurance either. I'll be uh, to be clear, like that's not right. unique to insurance. The difference is with insurance. Not only is it an extraordinarily regulated product, right? You got twelve thousand regulators across the fifty states and the six jurisdictions, um, but it is. It's a product that most consumers don't understand. And it is a complex contract and a promise. It's not something you hold. It's not something you, you use. It's not a commodity. It's not toilet paper. Uh, <laughs> so once you can get past all of those conversations, I think you can get regulators to say, okay, like as long as I'm still the one in charge, as long as I'm still the boss, then we can look past some of those outdated laws. Got it, got it. So tell me a little bit about the, because we, we spoke about this, right? Updating the law, right? That's something which is happening. And uh, just uh, tell us a little bit about where we stand in terms of that sure. effort to update the law. Is it state by state? Is it, you know, I'm assuming that's what it is, but just tell us a little bit about what to expect there. Sure. So um, for, for folks, again, new to the newer to the industry, there's a body, the NAIC, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, and that's where each, uh, each state insurance commissioner is a member of that body. Um, they are not lawmakers. They create models, right? They set standards. They say, okay, here's a model we all think this is a really great idea. You should go back to your state and talk to your state legislators and get it in your insurance code. With that said, the NAIC has a lot of clout. And when you say something is an NAIC model law, it tends to get passed in the states. Um, it might get modified a little bit around the edges, but it tends to get passed. So one of the big initiatives that they've, they've been undertaking of late is updating the Unfair Trade Practices Act and anti-rebating laws. And this is something you and I chatted about a little bit before, because the idea that an insurance company is breaking the law if they give a consumer a water sensor is crazy. Um, right. It's because that's not an enticement. That's not a, an improper act. But the way the law is written, you can't give a consumer a thing of value. And a water sensor is a thing of value. Even though the insurer benefits, the consumer benefits, and the regulator benefits by having one less complaint that's likely going to come in. Uh, so yeah. they're working on updating all of the anti-rebating provisions in the model law. Now, that'll trickle out to the states over the course of the next probably three to four years. Um, but that's that's a big one that has been a pretty big lift for the NAIC and and the their innovation and technology task force that that worked on a lot of this. Got it. That's just one example. <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. And, you know, that's obviously it, it hits home because that's the space that we're in. And you and I have talked about it, right? So as you start thinking about framing, I think I mentioned to you, one of the commissioners that I met uh, from one of the states basically said that, look, um, they have no problem with, with sensors, at least in terms of approving the product, as long as it's, it's set up as a risk mitigation concept, yep. right? And it's, it's, it's for everyone. 
right? So the, the regulation, or I think the commissioner was basically telling me, we're all for doing something which can be uniformly applied to all, right? That was their point. They don't mm -hmm. make it selective, uh, you know, for one versus the other. So um, what are your perspective on, uh, you know, on that aspect? Because we're, we're seeing some innovative, um, strategies, product evolution, both on the auto side as well as on the property side, right? And you and I have chatted about it. But tell me about your perspective on how, you know, how you see that evolving. Is that the thing that's gonna stick and 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 be the be the you know be the standard or you know still some time? Um potentially. So one of the things that I I find works really well when you're talking with with legislators and with regulators with commissioners is when you when you give them some of the astounding numbers in the IOT space right in 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 your world really when when you tell a commissioner that 125 new devices connect to the internet every second when you tell a committee chairman that there's going to be 43 billion connected devices 5 years from now those are numbers that make them pay attention. Right? And, okay, so then you've got their attention and they say, okay, well, wh why do I care? What does this have to do with insurance? And you say, okay, well, let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk it through. More insurance is good. We want more insurance. You want more insurance, that means more jobs in your state. That means more people. That means more, more transactions. Things happen because of insurance that otherwise would not happen. Um, so you want more insurance. How do we create more insurance? Well, we reduce losses and we reduce costs. And that creates the opportunity for more coverage. And that creates ways to align. Again, this is it's all about alignment, right? We want to align our members at NAMIC. We want our, our carriers to be have their interests aligned with the policyholder who doesn't have to worry about when they have a loss, um, they know they're covered because that's that's what good coverage is, is, you know, we take care of our policyholders. So you tell the politicians, okay, here's the numbers. We want more jobs, more insurance, more benefit in the state. More people will take leaps of faith in forming a business because they have coverage, right? They'll buy a house, they'll buy a car because they can get it covered that they otherwise wouldn't. So when you frame it that way, you've got their attention. True, true. And I think that, you know, the whole idea of insurance is protection, right? And the way, what, what we're talking about is really technology enhancing that protection, right? So if we can now come to them and say, here's a, another reason for you to push it because it increases protection and it's happening anyway, right? The technology is going to advance and the consumers are going to adopt it. So might as well tap into it in a way that aligns a win-win outcome for everyone is Absolutely. that's how at least we see it. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, you know, I talked about this a little bit, uh, you know, that telematics and IOT, mm -hmm. you know, it took off on the auto stride first, right? We're now starting to see almost every incumbent legacy carrier has a program um, there are insure techs um, like Root who are only having the product based on telematics. 
Um, and, and we're starting to see some of that happening on the um, you know, property side too, people like Hippo taking the lead. What's your perspective on, on sort of that change? Um, how long will it take? Will it take place? Is that, because a lot of people question the insure tech viability, right? And can they sustain it for the future? Mm -hmm. And because what's your perspective on that? I think it depends on the consumers. We're going to have to see how the consumers react because I'll tell you, you know, consumers 50 and older have no interest in, even if they have a smartphone, they have no interest in downloading an app that's going to track them all the time when they drive. Um, so there's an age issue. Okay. Now there's also the age issue also speaks to the privacy issues because I, you know, I'll talk to my younger cousins or uh, friends that are, that are a little younger and they just assume that privacy doesn't exist. Like they'll give their information to anybody right. <laughs> for, for a couple dollars. Right. <laughs> Where, whereas I'm still sort of in the wedge. I'm like, right, right on that cusp of, of the, the millennials. Um, yeah. I think they call, they call us older millennials or, <laughs> um, but I'm not comfortable giving my information by and large to just about anybody. Um, so there's consumer expectations are shifting. And I think that's going to be a big part of the, of the conversation that, that you're talking about um, in terms of telematics, but it's also things like, okay, does a carrier require me to have one of the dongles that plugs into my OBD2 port or can I just download an app? Um, yeah. The, the, the way it manifests itself is going to matter. Um, you know, I think a lot of customers will appreciate feedback. Um, you know, you could do a better job with fewer braking, less braking, fewer hard turns, things like that. Um, so feedback is probably good. As a theft prevention device, I think it's awesome. I think it's great, the, this direction of, of connected devices. I think that's really helpful. I think it's really helpful for reducing fraud too um, from, from the carrier side. If, if nothing else, the ability to sniff out fraud um, should make insurance carriers very excited about IoT, telematics, and, and that technology. Um, as to like, I, I mean, I, th I think it will continue to be adopted a little by little by little. Um, I don't think we'll ever get to a hundred percent penetration. Like, I, I think there's just, there's going to be people who don't want this. And, and that's what our experience has been in telematics so far too. Right. And in auto telematics, a lot of people just don't want it. True. 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 And honestly, that's, that's the reason why I started the company because I didn't want it too. I, when my carrier said they put it in the car, I didn't want it. But I said, you know, my home is okay. I think I can live with the idea that my, you know, somebody's looking, collecting data to watch out for a water leak. Hell, let someone steal that data. I don't, okay. right. it's okay, right? Compared right, to because, and, and so, it's a different item because I think what you're talking about, that mitigation prevention is less about your behavior than about the condition of the property. There you go. And I think people are more willing to accept that. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, you know, in, I personally think that it's a better application in the property realm because it's a thing. 
and we're talking about things being connected and sort of having that prevention use case associated with a thing. But consumer behavior, totally right, right? It all the adoption will depend upon the consumer behavior and how much we're able to get past their hurdles and concerns around privacy and data transparency. And we've we've heard that you know the research has also shown that although there's this interesting uh, data point uh, from a recent podcast by um, the CEO of Hippo who said that they have found that the maximum adoption for their devices has come from 50 plus category, which was interesting. For them. Yeah, that was interesting. So there, um, there was some interesting thing that they shared. Now that's completely different than Lemonade's experience, where it's you know mostly the the first time millennial. I, mm -hmm. Probably not even the millennial. There's probably the Gen uh, Gen Z. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Gen Z. Yeah, Gen Z. That's uh, what my daughter says she is. So <laughs> the Gen Zs, right? The uh, late teens, early twenties. Mm -hmm. That's. Um, um, so you're going to see a very different behavior from these digital natives than compared to us who have to, you know, figure out a way to use an app and, you know, just the learning curve, right, to be associated mm -hmm. with technology adoption. But anyway, uh, point well taken. Uh, from your perspective, I just wanted to ask you this uh, sort of the last question on this technology air before we move on to others is, uh, you know, you're in a good vantage position at Namik and even before that, right, to see a lot of uh, startup activities. And I'm sure um, you would agree that it has, it has only increased over these last few years, right? And insurance has attracted a lot of startups. It is seeing a lot of investment in, in startups. Also, uh, incumbents, right? The legacy carriers are also investing in technology. Um, just wanted to ask you if post COVID, what's your perspective? You know, do you think there there would be you know what's what's likely to be the technology embrace, so to say, by these carriers? Um, do you think they're going to accelerate? You're going to see more and more startups, or do you, do you think there's going to be a um, I don't know, you know, stabilization phase, etc.? Um, I think well. I'll, I'll answer that sort of two two parts. Number one, there are, I think I think society at large is woefully underinsured. Okay, I, th I think I think we, just society is generally underinsured. That is probably a result of that they're just there being room for these startups and insure techs to do something a little bit differently. Okay, now where a lot of these insure techs have already gotten themselves into trouble is where, where they, they take this attitude of like, we are disruptors. We are going to change everything. We're going to ask the fundamental questions. The insurance industry is corrupt. The insurance industry is terrible. They treat their consumers badly. All oh, that doesn't help. Nobody's impressed. You're, you're a tough guy. Good job. Like you don't, you don't even know what a loss ratio is. Right. I'm not impressed. So yes, there is room for those companies and there's, there are ways that they can succeed. Um, part of that will be partnering with carriers. Part of that will be as a vendor to carriers, as sort of a an add-on, right? <laughs> to, to your risk model or your underwriting model or your rate-making models. Like more data is always better. More, more data is better. I'm not, that's... <laughs> um, 
what the legacy carriers and the big incumbents are trying to do right now and what where their challenges lie is in verifying the accuracy of the data they receive. If I can sort of, uh, to, to say, yeah, I, I, I'm aware of a couple of national carriers who have entire divisions of 25 to 30 people who do nothing but scrub data that is incorrect about applicants and policyholders. If I can verify the data and I know what I'm underwriting and know how what I'm what I'm rating on, there's my advantage. I don't need you in sure tech. I don't need you startup. I don't need any. I I got good data. Right? So that that's sort of where I see it going. I think to be a real value add, the insure techs are going to have to find legacy carriers that they can partner with, or become really good at providing a service that the legacy carriers need. Yeah. And I think you said something which, you know, caught my attention last time also, you know, plug into the IOT technology, which is accuracy, right? Accurate data, uh, real-time data, accurate data, verifiable data, right? So once you have a, a stream of data that you know is high quality, then you can do things with that data. Absolutely. Right. And I think to me, that's the promise of this. Uh, you know, a lot of the times carriers, especially the company carriers, when you go to them with anything related to data, they'll say, we have enough data, right? We have enough data. We have enough problems. Right. But if it's data. bad data, that doesn't help anybody. Exactly. Right. So then the conversation needs to be, I don't care how many room full of data you have. If it's not good quality data, right. ever, you're going to keep collecting this bad quality you know, 30% accurate data right. an opportunity to build a new stream on, I don't know, 90% plus, you know, accurate data. So that's the real opportunity, I feel. And I think if they're smart, they'll also understand that that conversation about accurate data will help them with the regulator. There you go. Right. So that's what the regulations want. They, the regulators want that too, right? Just the, hey, as long as it's accurate, it's relevant to the consumers and everyone, you know, Right. And, and then you can have a separate question and a separate conversation about, you know, all the other drivers in the insurance industry of equity and social justice and all the other things that people want to use the insurance mechanism to solve society's problems. Um, but it's got to start with the math and it's got to start with the data. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this was great. So on this amazing Opportunity. I feel like we can go on and on and on, but yes. let me move the conversation a little bit about uh, getting to know Tony a little bit more. So, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I have a set of questions just just to just on that topic. But the last question on the previous segue is, you know, if you could change one thing, one thing in the world today you know, your world, your professional world, that would make it better. What would that be? Oh, wow. Um, hmm, hmm. I, one thing that would really make things 
that would solidify, I think, and it would solve a lot of the battles that we have that that I have to get involved in right now would be that you put into the insurance law in every state that if a rate is actuarially sound, it is not discriminatory. If we could get that in every state law, every state's laws, we'd be in great shape. <laughs> um, because the, as, as we were just talking about, you know, the, there's, there's movements afoot out in, out in society that say, you know, all, all insurance is racist and race and insurance discriminates against poor people and minorities when that is inconsistent with the facts. <laughs> um, but if we could say, politics comes in, right? So I think, right. But if we could that. say the math is what determines whether your rate is fair or not, just math, then I mean, I might put myself out of a job. <laughs> no, I think, uh, as you and I just said, right, it's, it's a data-driven decision, which has, you know, an outcome based on set of inputs, and it's transparent, available for all to see. And accurate. And negates that, you know, that subjective opinion or you <laughs> yeah. know, perception that, look, it's racist. So, yep. Um, yeah, that, that, that's what I want for Christmas. Can we get, that? can we make that happen? <laughs> I promise. 25 Christmases out. I promise. You know, you <laughs> might, uh, uh, all right. Um, switching gears here a little bit, you know, you've had an amazing uh, journey, uh, you know, almost two decades uh, in the industry. Tell me, what is your proudest achievement and the biggest learning? Sure. Um, and, and they're probably the same, um, which was when I was at the NAIC, um, gosh, I want to say it was 2014, maybe 20, in 20, yeah, it was probably around 2014. Um, we started hearing rumors and, you know, coming out of the financial crisis, everyone was concerned about big institutions and systemic institutions. And even though AIG insurance was not what set off all the dominoes, the insurance industry still got looped into a lot of that. Um, part of what uh, my, my team and I at the NAIC were tasked with was changing a federal law that basically said, if a bank holding company, which a lot of insurers are set up as bank holding companies, um, if they are having financial issues, you cannot steal, essentially, you can't take money from the insurance side of the house to pay out the banking side of the house. And we got that made into federal law. It's the Policyholder Protection Act. Um, and it is, it, it's now ensconced in federal law. I have a copy of it up, up in my office. Um, nice. It, it, but it, 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 captured for me everything that's important about this industry, which is it's not banking, right? This is an industry built on promises and contracts. Not There's no run on the insurance company. And we had to do whatever we could to protect against that. So making sure that you can't steal from insurance policyholders to pay out bank depositors 
was a really, really big win. Um, and when we got that enacted into federal law, we were pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, I bet you were. So what was the learning? Well, the, the learning was just how difficult it can be to get five sentences into federal law. <laughs> I bet it took you, uh, how many Christmases did that take to? You know, it, it only took about a year and a half, but I think we were having on average probably five or six meetings with congressional staff about that issue every week. Wow. And trying to explain to them why it mattered and why they, why their bosses should vote to protect insurance policies because their assumption is always, well, the insurance companies are evil. Right, right, <laughs> wow. That sounds like uh, some some fun times, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad it's passed and I'm glad it's a law. Yes. Uh, awesome. So should every, every, every policy holder in the country should be happy. <laughs> Good, they should be thanking you. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> um, so Tony, I, I know you, uh, you know, you, you operate at the intersection of so many interesting aspects of life and society. Um, but how do you keep yourself updated? What do you like to read? Like, what are your hobbies? Talk, tell us a little bit about, about that. So uh, updated is, is tough. I mean, I read every newsletter I can get my hands on and there are 20 of them in my inbox any given morning. Um, a lot of the local Kentucky Today, all our local newspapers, I try and make my way through uh, first thing in the morning. On the insurance side, on the industry side, um, I find that uh, the III has really good, their blog, the Insurance Information Institutes, I believe is what it's called, Triple I. Um, their blog is really good. Um, you know, I'll, I'll look at a lot of the NAIC website to see any newsletters, any alerts that come out of them. Um, a lot of just talking to folks and like, like, like yourself and just, you know, try and try and stay up on, Hey, you know, what, what's happening? Did a bill get filed? Um, read a lot of weekly sort of reports um, and try and, even when I'm not sort of really actively engaged, I try and keep webcasts and podcasts on in the background to see if anything sort of catches my ear. Um, you know, Property Casualty 360 has a great series. LexisNexis does a series. Actually, NAMIC, we host our own webinars uh, on occasion. Um, so th those tend to keep me pretty, pretty well occupied. On the political front, um, I read Real Clear Politics. I find that that is the single most representative site of both sides of, of each argument because um, they have columns from the right and columns from the left and, and they have pretty good data and trackers too. <laughs> got, it, got it, got it, excellent. So, um, you know, I wanted to ask you, um, and I always ask my guests, like if you were to turn on to a future episode or podcast, but purple pondering, what are some guests that you would like to hear from? So I think any, if you are able to get anyone in the, uh, in that, in the space of monitoring crashes, I find that fascinating on the auto side. Um, folks who monitor highways, 
and and who monitor like traffic light cameras and things like that, right? Speeding tickets, all of that, where that connects with the technology, I think that'd be a fascinating conversation for you to have with whoever is playing in this space. I mean, there's there must be folks in it. I, I just don't know them well yet. <laughs> I'll have to do but, research, right? Which are the startups are, uh, you know, focused on this area, which is interesting. Auto claims is is pretty big. I'm sure there are people in different uh, hats operating mm-hmm. at that realm of figuring out how do we make it safer. And you know, I, you know, you mentioned something. I'll just say this: I was having this conversation with somebody else about IoT telematics, and the question they asked was, "Okay, how?" Has IoT proven to prevent accidents, right? Improve loss ratio the right way, which is proven. And I said, look, we're, the way I see this whole driverless cars and sensors and like all of that is moving in a direction where, you know, the, the, the cars are much more smarter to figure out who's coming from which side and is going to cause a crash and sort of take action against it, right? To move the lanes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that was, uh, you know, that was how I was thinking about sort of the real use of technology, which is just to prevent these accidents and make it safer. And who knows, one of these days when you have these flying taxis, that's what's going to happen, right? Well, I, I think that's part of it. But I think there's the other side of it, too, that we have to think about, which is where the data goes after a crash. Okay, what did we learn from that crash? Because the way it works today, depending on where you crash, that determines which police officer comes out to to write the report. The reports are not standardized in any way, shape, or form. They're not in a comprehensive database. Um, You know, you could be on one side of the street and be dealing with a county sheriff, and on the other side of the street, you're dealing with state police. There you go. And those reports are not together. So we don't know where crashes have happened. Could they have been avoided? And how do we change it? Like, do we need to add a stop sign here? Do we need to add a traffic light? Do we need to add a circle? Those are the kinds of conversations that I think insurers can really benefit from. It's a good one, good one. I mean, I think to me, as I was thinking about it, like there's this data uh, about how texting distracts driver and causes mm-hmm. crashes, right? So now, and it said, there's some number attached to it, 78% of drivers are texting. And so, and then there's a higher correlation with that leading to a, a, a crash, right? So, but, but your point is valid, which is we, we don't have standardized data coming out of every crash, which is being collected at one place or a different place so that you can infer actionable insights right from exactly. that exactly that's the part which is like you want to get there but then there are these interim steps that have to happen before that happens so mm-hmm. got it got it cool well I'll, I'll i'll look it up and see who fits that uh, profile but uh all right moving into this last sec- sure. segment uh, tony this is just to get uh to learn the fun side of uh, of Tony, I don't know if you're into books or movies or sports or all of the above. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, enough of all of the above. <laughs> okay, good. All of the above. So I'm going to just give you two options. I want you to pick the one that that you uh, align with or 
uh, feel closer to and tell us why. Sure. Let's start with the easy ones. So paper books or eBooks? Uh, paper. They get heavy though. And why? The, the pa paper just, I, I like to have something I can actually feel. The, I mean, I'll read the ebook sometimes, but it just, I, I don't know. I don't like the, this is super nitpicky, but I don't like the little bar on the bottom that tells you what percentage of your book you've read. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. Um, <laughs> all right. Next one is Superman or Spider-Man. Ooh, I, I, that I guess Spider-Man. I, I don't really, not not much on the comic book front, but I, I feel like Spider-Man's human at least. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, baseball or football? Ooh, to play baseball, to watch probably football, but. Uh, yeah, I, I am certainly a, a baseball addict in in far too many ways. Um, and the, the time I was in D.C., I ran a season ticket group for the Nationals uh, for about 10 years and spent a lot of time, money, and, and, and heartache in that stadium. <laughs> in fact, the, the mock-up of the stadium is what's behind me from, oh, from the original nice. design. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. What about basketball? Is that something that you follow as well or not? I, I do. Um, you know, I, I went to high school in Spokane, Washington, uh, home of Gonzaga University before they were a basketball powerhouse. Uh, and of course, now living in Kentucky, uh, we've got the University of Kentucky and the University of Louisville that both play here in our backyard. So yeah. um, so, so you want to vein us to the uh, uh, great of, greatest of all time, the GOAT, you know, <laughs> question of whether it's LeBron or it's Jordan? Oh, I, I I have to still think it's Jordan. <laughs> Just the game has changed a lot. Let's put it that way, right? It's The game has changed a lot and LeBron does a lot of things that I can never see Jordan doing, but he does not take over a game the way Michael Jordan did. <laughs> Got it. Got it. <laughs> and uh, the final one, you know, post COVID, let's say everybody's got the vaccines. We're all good to go. We can travel anywhere, <laughs> right? In the world. <laughs> so uh, which would your, what would you pick as a, a favorite vacation spot? Uh, a beach like Hawaii or, you know, mountains or, you know, the icy conditions like in Iceland? <laughs> um I, so i flash back to and you know i'm sure we will at some point go back there but my wife and i we did our honeymoon in italy and did a 10-day food tour where we got to sample foods all over the country i would do that again in a heartbeat once uh you well, know once you sanity more. returns well, a food festival as in you just kind of go one city to city and yeah we were on a bus um with about you know 15 20 other folks and we went all around there was a little bit of sightseeing but mostly we just ate <laughs> yeah italian food with italian wine i'm guessing is uh, pretty much wine. the wine was cheaper than the water <laughs> well there you go <laughs> that's that's europe for you right water expensive <laughs> super expensive 
Um, awesome. Well, on that note, I will uh, let you know that brings to an end us to an end to this episode. Sure. Uh, any final words from your side before we wrap up? Just keep doing what you're doing. Um, you know, the, the being a disruptor who follows the rules and is willing to play by the rules and influence them is much more productive and leads to better conversations and it's going to lead to a better product for consumers. Um, you know, just spitting at the industry isn't going to win it, isn't going to win anything. Got it. Yeah, no, I'm not from that cut up cloth anyway. So, yep. but uh, thank you for your wishes and Thank you. And with that, we've come to an end to this episode. Uh, thank you, guests. We'll be back very soon with another episode. Till then, Great. bye. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye.